Well, Ann and I were, were catching up with Chris and Crystal last night. They've been in town since Monday-ish, right? And uh, so we wanted to hear all about their, their time away. And uh, eventually that question came up, hey, are you glad to be back, you know, starting work on Monday? And, and there was a slight pause, uh, <laughs> slight pause from Chris. So I just went ahead and interjected an idea. I said, look, there's a lot of new people out here at Redeemer that may not even know who you are or what you look like, right? <laughs> so what if, what if I just pretend to be Chris and I'll just, I'll just come introduce myself as Chris, and you guys can just go back, you know, and, and hang out some more. So he quickly just went ahead and jumped in and said, no, we're glad to be back. We're glad to be back. Uh, so we are uh, glad to have you back, man. Not only, I'm sure this church is uh, your people, right, but as a network of churches, we're glad to have him back and, and uh, leading the church that he started over five years ago. Um, you know, I work with Sojourn Network. We just hit our, our 50th church over the summer while you guys were away, and uh, What's exciting about that is not the number. 50 is not that huge, right? It's still pretty small in the grand scope of the number of churches throughout the world. But what's exciting about that is it represents healthy churches in communities that really, really need the gospel. It represents churches filled with pastors who love the gospel and want to see themselves, their families, their churches, and, and ultimately their communities saturated with the good news of Jesus, this gospel that we all believe in and profess, right? And so that number is just one small dent in the, in the lostness that we, all, that we all want to see go away. And one day will go away, right? And so we keep pressing on, we keep planting churches, and we're thankful that you guys faithfully continue to pray and give towards these efforts in Sojourn Network. Part of your offerings here go to our network so that we can plant churches. In 2012 through 2014, we were able to plant about two to four churches a year. Last year, we were able to plant uh, eight churches, and this year we're on pace to do between 15 and 20 church plants this year alone. And so we're, we don't say that to boast in our efforts. In fact, we don't even try to go out and, and find these guys. The Lord keeps bringing men within our churches that say we want to plant churches to see the kingdom of God come as best we can on earth now, as it one day will in its fullness. So we're thankful for this church. I can't just stand in front of you without saying thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness, for being here this morning as well. So I'm going to jump into James. That's where you guys have been for a while. So I'm going to pick right back up in James chapter 5. You guys can go ahead and turn there. And as you turn, go ahead and stand for the reading of of God's word. James chapter 5, we're going to pick it up. That is the loudest stand I've ever heard in the church. That's amazing. Come on. James chapter 5, verse 13. This is the word of the Lord, inspired by the Spirit, written by men. It's powerful, it's effective, it's sufficient. It carries the good news, of, the good news of salvation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Father, we need you this morning to open our eyes and ears and our hearts and our minds to hear your word. I'm just a human vessel, so God, I need your spirit right now to speak 
through me and through your word. You promise us that your word won't go out and be ineffective when it is preached. And so take my feeble attempts and may they land on soft hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I think the heart of this passage, as I was reading it this week, just praying about it, struggling over it, there's a lot in here, right? I think the heart of the passage, though, is actually in verse 16. So if you look down in 16, it says this, and we're going to pick up in the second half, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Your, your, your translation may say has great power as it is working. Another translation would be is powerful and effective. So the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so because that's true, now we can pray in all circumstances. That's, that's the heart of this message, that because the righteous person's prayer is powerful and effective, we can pray in, in any situation that we find ourselves in. So that's how we're going to move through the passage, and I want to start with the prayer of a righteous person. That's what we've got to figure out. So the big question there is, what is a righteous person, right? What is a righteous person? So the word for righteous in the original language here, which would have been Greek, just means someone who is obedient to God's laws perfectly. The righteous person is someone who obeys perfectly. It's moral rightness. It carries a, a justice and a mercy and a love component. It's someone who, who does righteous deeds, right? It's someone who does this. And so James, who's the author of this particular letter, right, is making his case that the righteous is someone who lives righteously, who does righteous things, right? So those who desire, James says, to live out their faith in this gospel will do righteous deeds. Love your neighbor as yourself, love God, um, all, care for the widow and the orphan, all the things we heard Pastor Dave talk about. So at this point, those of you who are familiar with your Bible will say, well, what about, what about Paul's version of righteousness, right? What about Paul's version? Because Paul seems to be more concerned not with us doing righteous deeds, but about the fact that we as Christians are righteous before before God. So Paul calls his righteousness in Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and Corinthians a righteousness of someone else, the righteousness of Jesus that's given to us. The, the word theologians use is an imputed righteousness. Imputed means something that's credited to your account, but that's not yours, right? Something that's given to you, that's actually someone else's righteousness. So we, we as Christians believe Jesus, during his ministry on earth, was sinless, and that he actually is the only person who's ever obeyed God's law to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those would sum up all the Old Testament law and the prophets. So we would say Jesus is the only one that's actually done that perfectly. And so when we put our faith in him by God's grace, he gives us his perfect record and says, you can have it. So it'd be like me. I'm from Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta. And so what if I move my family to Bloomington, the home of Indiana University? Hoosier land, right? And so I come and I say, I'm a Hoosier. I'm now a Hoosier. I live here. I'm, I'm, I'm a Hoosier. So I'm going to start acting like it. I'm going to the games. I'm tailgating. I'm, I'm going to watch the games. Right? I'm going to watch them get beat by Ohio State. I mean, I'm going to watch them play. Right? So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start living like a Hoosier because I, I, I live here. But someone who's been here their whole life is going to say, you didn't go to Indiana. I don't even know where you went to. Small state school in Georgia? Actually, that is true. I did. So there's a, you're not even a Hoosier for real. Right? So what James is basically saying is, look, it would be like me moving to here at Bloomington and saying, I'm just going to start acting like a Hoosier. I'm going and doing all this stuff, right? 
But someone might come and say, no, what you need is an actual degree from Indiana University before you can be a Hoosier. That's how we know you're, you're an actual Hoosier. Or you have to be from here, right? So someone says, look, I know you're not going to go to Indiana because I'm not sure grade-wise you can actually get in, right? So Dave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you all the hard work I did on my degree. I'm going to just credit that to you, right? Let's pretend that's legal for a moment, right? Uh, so I'm going to give it to you. Now you're an actual Hoosier, so now, now go and live like a Hoosier. That's actually what's happening. So it's not that Paul is saying this and that James is saying this. They're both building off of one another. Paul's saying it's true. You need this to be a Christian, to be righteous. And, and James is saying now because of that, you have to go and live righteously. Does that make sense? That's the heart of this this letter, this letter is more about the living righteous, the living in faith and works, the living with obedience, guarding your tongue, not showing partiality to the rich, not growing spiritually lazy. It's all about living a righteous life. But we can't forget that a righteous person is also what Paul says. You are righteous because you've been made righteous because Jesus has given you his righteousness. You cannot forget that when we dive into this passage because it's the heart of the passage, that it's the righteous person who prays powerfully and effectively. Does that make sense? All right, you're tracking with me? So do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that you can be made righteous? And do we believe that in our righteousness that we can actually live rightly before God and others? What's the danger of living just, just pretending that we are, uh, not pretending, but just the fact that we are righteous? What's the danger there? Well, we get lazy. God's made us righteous, I'm good. But what's the danger over here with just living, doing right things all the time, right? All kinds of stuff. Burnout, pride, entitlement, something we call moralism, which means basically that I'm doing all this stuff, God. Why am I still sick and suffering? Those are the dangers of the extremes. We need both. We are righteous, so we live righteously. So that's the, that's the heart of this passage. That's the foundation, and so now we're going to finish the verse. Look back in, in verse 16. So it's the prayer of a righteous person that is very powerful and effective. Okay, so we've got our foundation. We are righteous. So as Christians, we can pray with power and effectiveness. It's very clear. Power and effectiveness is the default. Now, we can pray in lots of different ways, right? We can pray with patience. We can pray with a certain posture. But, but James is talking about power and effectiveness, so think of it this way. So, so my wife and I were listening to a, a podcast that's grown really popular over the past 12 months called Up and Vanished, right? So we're in the car driving here. We're listening to Up and Vanished, which essentially is, is by this guy named Payne Lindsay who decides to start a podcast. He's never done this before. He's not a, he's not a, a private investigator or anything. He just is a normal human being that says, I'm going to podcast about a cold case involving uh, a girl that was kidnapped and killed in 2005 in a small town in Osceola, Georgia. That's down like in the neck of my woods, down south of Atlanta. I'm going to open this case back up, and I'm going to see if we can somehow do something here by opening all this up. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation hasn't been able to solve it. There's been news reports, and it's just a cold case. So he starts digging all this stuff out. Well, actually, this spring, they arrest a guy, and they convict him. And they're in the middle of, of all this podcast. So what, why is this podcast so effective at grabbing our attention? Why are the ratings keep soaring? Well, I think the heart of it is because the story is powerful, right? It's, it's a powerful story. 
But now it's actually a story that's not only powerful, but effective. It's been effective to make an arrest that hasn't been done in 12 years. This is what, this is what, this is what James is, is saying here. To a, to a greater de- degree, if we want our lives to be powerful and effective, and I think we as Christians do. We want to do great things for, for God, his kingdom. We want to do great things in our neighborhood. We want to go do great things through this church. Well, we need a power and an effectiveness. We, we need some way to say, how is this going to actually work? And James says that actually comes through prayer. And so I think this is why James includes Elijah's story at the bottom. Elijah, in verses 17 and 18, is a guy that's just like us. That's why he says he has a nature just like us. So read with me in, in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So he's human. Now, if you think of Elijah as these people would have, which is probably a, a, probably a church filled with Jewish Christians now, they know Elijah well. Elijah's legendary. He's a legendary prophet. His story is found in 1 Kings, starting in chapter 17, when he comes on the scene and he declares, I'm praying. God's, God's judging his people for not repenting of sin. So he brings in Elijah, says, pray that it would not rain. And Elijah does, and it stops raining for three and a half years. And so in between that period, with no rain, famine comes, and so there's story after story of God using Elijah to pray powerfully. In fact, he brings um, a widow's son back to life through his prayer. Right? So that's the Elijah. So immediately I'm thinking, James is not a very good example. This guy brought somebody back to life. It's not encouraging for me as just a human who's trying to live my faith out. But if you keep reading the story, you're going to see after Elijah does these miraculous faith-filled, powerful moments of, of declaring God's power, he's going he's gonna to fall into depression, self-pity, entitlement, pride, and God ultimately is going to take away his ministry and replace him with another prophet called Elisha. In other words, Elijah is a human, just like us, and yet he prayed effectively. But the question would be, okay, we can pray as a righteous person with power, and effectiveness. But where does the power come from? So even if I believe I can pray like James, or I can pray like Elijah, or I can pray like Pastor Chris or Pastor Dave, even if we did believe that, and I think a lot of us doubt that we can, because these, these guys are like Christian all-stars, if I could pray like Tim Tebow, you know, if I could pray like Tim, right? But Tim's ordinary as well. So where do these guys, and where can you get your power? I, I, so I was thinking, how, how, do I, how do I help, how will I help me understand this? How has God helped me? So I thought I would share this, share this. So our church planners use a personality profile. And we do this to learn more about them. And so there's a certain profile we use that has, that basically would summarize uh, all humans expressing themselves through nine different personalities. And two of those nine traits are the powerful person and the effective person, the two words that, that James uses here in this passage, right? Powerful and effective. So the powerful person is defined as someone who endeavors to be strong, straightforward, assertive, who uses his or her strength to influence and make the world a more just place. They value equity, the equal distribution of power, and show concern for the underprivileged and disenfranchised. That's the powerful person. So th- this profile would say all of us have that in us, but some express it more readily. We, we know people like this, right? Right? You might be like this. The effective person, it defines like this, is someone who values efficiency, industriousness, competence. They're productive. They want to make the world a more efficient place to live. 
These are get it done people. So th- these are two of these nine traits. A lot of our church planners are like this. I'm not saying Chris is. A lot of our church planners are like this. In fact, um, actually, these are two of the most prominent traits on, on my profile. A lot of good can be done through people that are wired this way. Also, a lot of bad can be done, right? Think of the powerful person. What's the, what's the danger of the, of the powerful person? Well, he goes out in his own strength and with zeal. That's why the song here, with zeal, no respite, no. We just sang that. What does that mean? With zeal, he doesn't know how to rest. He's just bulldozing over people, and everybody's burned out around him, and he's totally oblivious because he is on fire for the Lord, right? What if somebody's not a Christian with this trait? This is the classic, you know, CEO or executive that just has no clue. He is just driving the company forward. What about a mom or dad like this? This is the mom or dad who's at the beach, and they're doing wind sprints with their eight-year-old, getting him ready for college baseball, (laughs) right? So this is rampant in everybody, but more common in some. What about the effective person? Well, what the Lord's been teaching me there is the danger there is that we just work and work and work. We're trying to get things done. We can become obsessed with appearing productive when all the while we're ignoring anything inside of us. Everything is external. We're the first to serve. We're the first to do. We're the first to show mercy. We're the first to throw up a neighborhood block party. We're the first to just do missional, 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 missional. Movement, movement. I got to keep moving. Can't rest. And all the while, we're, we're tired. We're tired, and we don't really know who we are or why we're doing what we're doing. That's the danger there. So what, what, is, the, so what is the hope? How has God been able to help me who's learned over the last four or five years just how unpowerful I am and how ineffective I can be when I do it in my own strength? Well, he's taken me to a number of passages, but one of those passages that's just beautiful is Ephesians, Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. I encourage you to read the whole prayer. If this is you, you find yourself lacking power and and productivity, lacking power and effectiveness in your prayer or in your life. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says this. It's the end of a seven-verse prayer. He's coming to the end of it. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. We serve a God who is very productive and a God who wants to get things done in this world. And a God who went to great lengths to get things done through his son. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. According to the power at work within us. Not according to my power or my productivity, but according to the power at work within us. Do you see what's happening there? Our power and productivity only derive their power as God works in and through us. That's why Paul says in, in Colossians 1, 29 and 30, um, him we proclaim, he's talking about Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he goes on to say, for this I toil, for this I strive, working with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see that? Paul strives, God does the power. Paul strives, God works through him. It is God's power that makes you powerful and productive, not your own. This is crucial if we're going to pray with power and pray that God will make our prayers effective. Do you pray powerfully? Do you pray powerfully? If not, why not? Do you, do you pray that God will do things through your prayer and through your life? If you're not praying with power or productivity, why? Why don't we pray more like this? 
I once asked a professor at seminary, why is it that you preach with such boldness every time you get up? And he paused for a minute. And he said, I think it's three things. I have a clear conscience. I work hard to keep my conscience clear. Two, I study God's word, so I I have something to say. And then three, I pray according to God's purpose, not my own. If we're going to pray with power and productivity, and I think we all want to do this, right? We have to clear our consciences before the Lord. This is, this is, this is crucial. This means as we drop to our knees and we, we be silent before God and others, that we have to say, God, search my heart. Search my heart and reveal any, any sinful way within me. And then we sit there while he answers. And this is a hard prayer to pray. You might pull stuff up from the past. The Spirit may pull something up from this week. And you're going to have to do something about this. You're going to have to go ask forgiveness. You're going to have to go confess. But friends, it's worth it. Otherwise, our prayer is at risk of being powerless and ineffective. What does 1 Peter 3, 7 say? Husbands, treat your wives in an understanding way. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. So there's, some, there's something there where if we leave sin unconfessed, if we're not living righteous, God's saying, I'm, your prayers are not going to be powerful and effective. Clear your conscience and, and get in God's word. Because it's here that we learn to pray God's things back to God. Right? If you're not in God's word, you're just praying for random stuff. God, thank you for this day. God, I pray I sleep good tonight. Not bad prayers in and of themselves, but, but if, you pray, if that's all we're praying at night, those are not necessarily powerful and effective prayers, but clearing our conscience and getting in God's word creates a new prayer language. God, my neighbor is suffering. I pray that you would relieve her suffering, surround her with, with friends. It, it begins to shape our, our prayers that you're going to learn next week in, in the next two verses. God, I pray for that person it's just wandering from you and living hopelessly. God, give me an open door to go help bring them back into the fold. We, it changes our prayer language. Clear your conscience before God and others. Get in God's word. So it's the prayer of a righteous that is powerful and effective. It's the prayer of the righteous that's powerful and effective. So, so now the question... And the final point would be this. So when are we supposed to pray? So if our prayers as a righteous person can be powerful and effective, when are we supposed to pray like this? So jump back up to verse 13 with me real quick. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. So the first thing we learn is that James is saying from suffering to cheer, you can pray. That's the whole life spectrum, is it not? It's from the worst days to the best days. In seasons of, of plenty and in seasons of need, we can pray before God. The word here for suffering in this passage suggests a broad suffering. Uh, and, and, and when it ties back to Job or Elijah, specifically, we can see all kinds of stuff. Economic depression, um, economic loss, illness, even sin. This morning, I got a text from one of our pastors in Baltimore. Two more people had have been, have been shot and murdered, which just in this year alone in the city is 210 deaths, murders. 
in the text message thread, he was texting with another pastor who's supposed to preach. The preacher was saying, how am I supposed to preach two more deaths? So what they've done is they printed, they printed all 210 names of the people who've been murdered in Baltimore this year. They printed them out for their church family. They brought them in front for everyone to have a copy because it makes these murders real. And they said, we're going to pray. I don't know. I don't know what's causing it. I don't know how to help. Well, we're going to pray for these people, their families, and we're going to pray that God would give us a way forward. That is prayer in the midst of extreme suffering, right? But what about prayer in the midst of daily suffering? Just the, un- the inability to sleep well at night. Do we, do we get up and pray? Or do we get up and watch the 3 a.m. sports center? It's not really going to help us. God says in all circumstances, we can, we can pray, right? What about cheerful? The word cheerful here is a broad cheerfulness. So when we translate it, it's, it's just a general peace of mind, general good health and peace. And so James says, if you're in that stage of life, what do we do? We praise God. Now, we, we all kind of, eh, you know, we, we grind our teeth a little bit when we see the athlete, the professional athlete on TV, give all praise and glory to God after hitting the winning shot, right? Do we not? It's like, eh, kind of. Rubs me the wrong way. But there is a hint of truth in that, is there not? He's experiencing a moment of of cheerfulness. So even if it's not genuine, that's not ours to judge. But there is a little bit of a hint of truth that we can learn there. It's in moments of cheer, we praise God. Why? Because it keeps us humble. (laughs) Keeps us dependent. Because what's the risk in moments of health and peace of mind? Especially those in the West. You know, those of us here that live in America. It's it's spiritual laziness. It's, it's apathy. It's resting on God's making us righteous, but not living righteous. It's assumption. It's entitlement. I'm doing this, so I deserve this. It's all kinds of different sins, the sins of partiality, right? It, and it's just blindness. That's who James writing to. James writing is, is to not the poor or the extreme wealthy. It's like the middle class, if there was a middle class in this day, which there really wasn't a formal middle class. But this is, this is who he's writing to. In other words, he's writing to, to like us, right? So he's saying, you pray in times of cheer because it keeps us humble. So we pray in all circumstances. But then James says, hey, there's a couple, there's a couple instances here where, where actually our prayers go a little deeper than just general, general prayers, right? They go a little bit, a little deeper. So in verse 14, we see this. Is anyone among you sick? So now we got into a, a, a little bit more specific. And he's talking about physical sickness here. Right? Physical, if, if you're physically sick, what does he say? Well, let him call for the elders of the church and let, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. All right, that's a little interesting, right? This verse has been used, used for, for centuries to really just get into weird stuff, right? Um, so... Our friends, our, our Catholic friends would have, over the centuries, used this verse to create a new sacrament called Holy Unction, or the right, uh, the, the right, the last rites of someone who's about to die. They would call the priest in, the priest would come and pray, anoint the sick person or the, the person who's about to die with oil, and just to basically say your sins are forgiven. And we're going to read the next verse in a second when it connects this to sin. So we don't really see that in this passage. That developed slowly over the centuries. We don't really see any kind of special sacrament here where we can land on something that powerful, right? But tell, a televangelist would use this passage to say, oh, great, I can start a healing ministry. I can take people's money, and I will start healing people 
on air. And that's also an abuse of this passage, is it not? This is not what this passage is saying, right? Others would say, I don't know what's happening here, uh, so I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist at all in the Bible. And let's, do, let's just read the next verse, right? So Christian bookstores will use this to uh, sell special oil, healing oil, right? All kinds of funky stuff come out of this one verse, right? It gets even more funky when we keep reading the next verse in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right, so, so now we got sin in the mix. I don't know, like, where did the sin come from, right? We're talking about physically sick people. We're talking about elders. We're talking about oil. And now we're, we're in the midst of sickness. And the crucial question of all, is this oil essential, right? <laughs> so all good questions, all good questions. Um, So here's a few thoughts that I I think will be encouraging and clarifying, I hope, because I've really struggled with this this week. One, James is encouraging, it seems, Christians to call the elders of their local church if they are sick physically. If you are sick, your elders are here to care for you, and they desire to pray over you. That would be one clarifying. It's the elders of the church. It's not a special person that has healing powers. It's, It's not a priest, per se. It is just the ordinary elders of the church who are, are there because they have shown that they are men of faith, right? The, just ordinary people. Second, the elders, nor the oil, is special or spiritual. It seems like in this, in this case, the elders are ordinary men. The oil is ordinary oil. Now, there are passages in the Bible, uh, the Good Samaritan would be one, where oil is used medicinally. So when the Good Samaritan finds the person in the trench, he pours uh, wine on his wounds to clean the wound, And he pours oil, presumably to heal, to help the healing process. So oil was used medicinally in this this age, but it's really not the point here. The point here is the most common type of oil use in the Bible is an anointing with oil to set someone apart for God's special care and attention. That makes sense? So the kings would be anointed. So when we anoint someone with oil, it's not something spiritual or special. The elders are doing it to say, God, we're, we're drawing your attention here to this sick person. Would you come and be with us, meet with us as we pray in faith that you give us, God, you give us the faith to pray for healing for this person. So the oil is not spiritual or special, just like the men are not spiritual or special. But the oil is used symbolically to draw attention, to say, we're anointing this person now to say, God, help, help bring your attention here to this person. Third, the elders are not replacements for doctors and medicine or even things like oil, right? We don't say when we're sick, I'm waiting for the elders before I take my ibuprofen. We say, I'm going to take the ibuprofen, that's what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to call the elders in. God's good gifts extend into just the general uh, providence of life. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He gives doctors for everybody. So don't let this fool us into thinking we don't need to call for doctors. Fourth, not all sickness is a result of sin. So in the midst of this, we see if he's, if he's, if he's feeling like he's caught in sin, may he confess that sin and he'll be forgiven. So when we go as pastors in front of someone who's sick, we don't assume that they're there because they sinned, Right? So in the scriptures, we see in John 9, the disciples and Jesus come across a blind man, and Jesus says, Jesus, the disciples say, hey, who sinned here? That his parents or him that he was born blind? Jesus says, neither. This man sinned so I could display my glory and heal him so that other people can read it for centuries 
and believe in me. So sin is not just a result of, sin doesn't always result in sickness, and not all sickness is, is because of sin, right? But lastly, some sickness is a result of sin. Sometimes God lays us out in sickness because we do have unconfessed sin. It seems like the suffering of his people in Elijah's time was because they had not repented of sin. And so he sent a famine. Sometimes it is the result of sin. In Mark chapter 2, for example, a paralytic be like this, Jesus teaching in the synagogue, people bring the paralytic down, right? And the first thing he does is not heal him of his paralysis, but he says, son, your sins are forgiven. But, and then he heals his physical sickness. So it's, it seemed like there was some connection there. So some sickness can be the result of sin. All right, that's a lot in two verses. But it's important that we have a little bit of clarity here so that we don't use this to come up with, with strange theologies, right? And so, and so we, we pray. We pray in suffering and in good health. We pray in sickness. We pray in sin. And in all circumstances, the righteous are called to pray. And the last thing here is this. <laughs> really quickly, will God answer our prayers? Will God answer our prayers? We've seen from this whole passage here that God loves to answer the prayers of his people. We've seen from this whole passage that he loves to answer the prayers of the righteous who pray in faith with power and for effectiveness. And they can pray in all circumstances, and yet the the question remains, will he answer our prayers? And the answer is a resounding yes, right? A resounding yes. Like, like, uh, Like chocolate that oozes its way through a chocolate swirl cake, right? One of my favorites. All throughout this passage, we see God's provision just oozing its way into the nooks and crannies of just these like six verses. If we read the whole scriptures, we'd see all throughout, like that chocolate, just weaving its way, God's sweet provision for his people. As they bite into and taste and see that he is good, they're going to taste that sweetness. God always provides, and so he's going to provide through provision and through promises. I'm just going to list these off. How does he provide? We'll do do provision and then promises. How does he provide? He provides prayer itself. That's one. Prayer is a gift. We pray because he's provided prayer to talk to him. Why would we not want to pray? This is his his gracious provision. We can come to him like my my three-year-old comes to me boldly and says, Father, I need some yogurt. (laughs) With attitude, right? But we can pray with that kind of power boldly and say, God, I need relief. I need clarity. I need direction. Help me. God has given prayer. Secondly, God's given you elders at this church. He's given you faithful men filled with faith. He's raised them up to say, these people pray for you regularly and they'll pray for you in special circumstances too. Ask them. He's he's given you elders. Third, he's given you the church community. One of the things tucked away right in the middle of verse 15 there is, if if you're caught in sin, confess one to another. One to another. One another. One another. The one another's of the Bible, and there's over 50 of them in the New Testament. That's, that's the church, right? That's the church. There's a sign in front of a church in my neighborhood that says, we pray well with others. And then underneath that, there's an emblem, a symbol for all the major world religions. And then there's a weird symbol for another one. I'm not even sure which is. The, it's like a sixth one. I'm not sure what it is yet. So, so there's a lot wrong with that sign, right? But the impulse there is community, Practically, the main part that's wrong with that is Christians have a hard enough time praying with each other. How are we supposed to pray with people that don't believe what we believe? It's hard enough to just call, call up someone or text someone and say, I need prayer. 
I need prayer. We don't do that. We're prideful people. Confess sin one to another. Of course, there's sin that we profess secretly. We confess secretly to God. But there are other sins involving others that we go. We need to go and confess sin one to another. So he's given us the church community. Confess your sins one another. And his other provision is just your life. Think about your life. God has given you so much provision. Just look back. Take a journal. Get out of your house. Shut down your computer and your phone for three or four hours and just say, God, show me all the ways you've provided for me in my life. And then stand back and be amazed. You'll see that he was working through the doctor. You'll see that he was working through the banker. You'll see that he was working through that random person who gave you money when your car broke down. You'll see that he was working through the admissions counselor to get you into that college. He's working in all circumstances for your good behind the scenes. God is the God of provision, and he often does it without us even being aware that he's working. But he is the one working through all of our life. Just look back and then be amazed. And so finally, he provides, but he also promises. Oh man, he promises. Look at what he promises in these verses. Salvation to the sick, forgiveness to the sinner, to the one who's been brought low from sickness. He promises you'll be raised up. He promises to heal the sufferer. Of course, he doesn't always heal the the sick in this life, but he promises to do it one day forever and ever through, through his promises. And how do we know that's true? Well, because he did it all through Jesus. He did it all through Jesus. Jesus was the one who took the sin of the world on himself so that we could be declared forgiven. Even on the cross, what is Jesus focused on? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is a God who is so quick to offer forgiveness. You don't have to fear hiding in your sin. No sin is too great for the forgiveness of Jesus. But Jesus also suffered immensely, and he prayed in his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be your will, take this away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And because he suffered, he is so quick to offer the relief because he empathizes with our suffering. He knows what it's like to suffer. And he can come and bring relief now. And if he doesn't bring it now, he will bring it for eternity one day. He was brought low so that we could be raised up. How do we know? Because he was brought low after he was crucified. Three days in the belly of sin and death. And what happened then? He was raised up. So when we read in James, he will raise them up. He will raise those of you up that have been brought low. We know that because Jesus was brought low, but then he raised himself up. And for 40 days, he said, this is the hope that we now have, that you too will be raised up one day. And then he was raised up in the ascension after 40 days. And now he is at the right hand of the father waiting to raise up all the righteous children who have believed in him throughout all of eternity. They will be resurrected. Jesus was the first. You and I will be next. And one day, one day that will be true for all of us. One day there'll be no more tears, no more sickness, no more suffering. And we'll live flourishing, cheerful lives. Righteous, pray. Pray boldly, pray with power and effectiveness because God will keep his promise. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would do what you have said you will do in your word. 
may we not be people who are quick to leave this place right now, but people who will take the next few minutes and just see how are we supposed to respond. What are you, what are you telling us right now through your word? Help each of us to know what season of life are we in? Are we in a season of suffering or in good health? Are we in a season of sickness or in a season of sin? Bring that clarity to us, God, and more, more importantly, bring your provision and your promises. Make them sweet like honey for each of us in here so that we will taste them and not live under the weight of our suffering and our guilt and our sin and our sickness, but God, come to you for peace. Come to you for forgiveness, for healing, for restoration. And help us to pray with the faith that we so often struggle to have. Help us not doubt. You can do what you promised to do. And we pray in that faith. Amen.